So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the seventh chapter, the first ten verses. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one go and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my servant do this and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. May the Lord bless this powerful, powerful reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I know that we can't even begin to scratch the surface of the richness of this passage But I do pray that you will make uh, my communication clear, um, that uh, those who are here listening to your word would be able to follow it and be able to understand it and be able to recognize what, what Dr. Luke is doing as he presents this story and where he presents it. And dear Lord, most of all, let us inspect ourselves to consider what is worthy in us and what is unworthy in in us and where our worthiness actually lies. We will give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to start out this morning with, I guess, a brain teaser of sorts. I have two statements that seem like they're in direct contradiction with each other and then sort of a summarizing statement to hopefully put it in perspective and certainly lead us into the rest of the morning. The statements are these. First statement, I am infinitely, I am infinitely and eternally unworthy. The second statement is, I am infinitely and eternally worthy. And that if I have any worth at all, my worth can be found in my unworthiness. Now, I know that doesn't make a lot of sense to a lot of people, and hopefully I'll be able to flesh it out. But what I'm saying is this, that I am completely, totally, infinitely, and eternally unworthy. But in another context, I am completely and totally and infinitely and eternally worthy. And if I have any worthiness at all, it is to be found in my unworthiness. There's a song, we sing more Getty songs than you might recognize, Keith and Kristen Getty. We sang one yesterday. But they have a song um, that is titled, My Worth is Not in What I Own. And there's one particular stanza that just kind of sticks out to me. I'm just going to read half of it now, 
And I'll read the full stanza at the end of the message. Half of it goes like this. Two wonders here that I confess. My worth and my unworthiness. They're, 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 they're going after the exact same concept that, that I'm going to try to bring out this morning. And to me, the exact same concept that Luke is presenting to us. Two wonders, two things that I'm amazed at. I confess they both are truths. My worth and my unworthiness. And the fact that my worth will be found in my unworthiness. As I said, we have a lot of text this morning, so I want to start uh, moving through it. I hope that I will bring out what I mean as we go through the text. Now, um, we just finished the Sermon on the Mount, if you haven't been with us. We just finished Luke's rendition of the Sermon on the Mount. But I don't want you to think that the sermon's over, that, that we're just to put it away as if it didn't happen. Because there's a flow that occurs from that sermon to the passage that we have before us this morning. Luke, of course, as a major thing, theme of his gospel is revealing to us the kingdom of God. He has revealed the king of the kingdom in Jesus Christ, the foundation of the kingdom in the apostles, the standard of the kingdom or the status of kingdom dwellers in the Beatitudes, both the positive and the negative. He has shared with us the, um, the ethics of the kingdom and the motives of the kingdom. But then in the second part of the sermon, as Luke gives it, um, Jesus has been focusing on what makes a good disciple and what makes a bad disciple. Uh, the, the difference between the, the kingdom dwellers and the kingdom dweller wannabes or the fakes or the phonies, if you will. And, and basically what he has said is that the good disciple is the one who follows the teachings of the master, meaning himself, and doesn't stray on their own. A good disciple is going to teach the words of Jesus. A good disciple is not going to be leading the blind into the pit because they're blind guides themselves. A good disciple is going to bear good fruit because they're good trees, because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so therefore, they are the ones with God in their hearts, and so they are good disciples. Good disciples, as we learned last week, are those who build their spiritual houses on the solid rock. The solid rock being Jesus, and more specifically, the solid rock being the words of Jesus. Now, don't you find it interesting that right after that discussion of good disciples and bad disciples, he gives us this example, where there's good disciple-likes and there's bad disciple-likes. And the good disciples, a pagan Roman Gentile, and the bad disciples are the elders of the Jews. Don't miss that. There's a flow here. There's a relationship that is being established. And that's kind of the first thing that I need to do. I want to establish that there is a dynamic that's going on here in Luke's gospel that is going to culminate with this story of the the centurion, or at least when the centurion's servant is healed. And, and, And it's sort of like this. We're going to have to go back a little farther to the fourth chapter when Jesus is teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. And everyone is amazed at him. And we're going to learn today that that synagogue was actually built by our centurion. Now, in that synagogue, the elders of the Jews of Capernaum are absolutely there. 
And so they are going to be privy. They're going to witness when Jesus cast the demon out of a demon-possessed man. They're going to see a bona fide miracle. Now, later on that day, Jesus is going to heal Peter's mother-in-law. And then when evening comes and the Sabbath is over, the whole town's going to line up. And Jesus is going to heal them of every imaginable disease. Well, there's no way that those Jewish elders are not privy to that. Now, over here, we have the centurion, the man that built the synagogue, who's not offered, not asked to worship in that synagogue, who is going to hear about Jesus. And we're going to see an incredible faith in this man. We're going to see no faith in these. There's a dynamic that is being created here. And, and, and you need to get the dynamic first because the questions I'm going to ask later are going to be based on that when we start talking about who is worthy and who is not worthy. Now, as I said, we have a lot of text this morning, and so I do hope you brought your listening ears. Please stay tuned to this because there's a progression of thought. And I fear that if you miss one of the, one of the early thoughts that's established here, you're, you're, you're going to miss the, the final one which, by the way, is a glorious thought that Luke is including here. So let's look at the text. Verse 1, After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now this is classic Luke. We've come to expect this. When Luke kind of starts a new section, he has a, a verse like this. Two things we want to notice from this verse. First, the chronology of this. He uses a word after that is nondescript. It doesn't say it's immediate. It doesn't say that it was a long time later. It doesn't give us any indication of how much time has passed. But I think that this happens very close after the Sermon on the Mount for the reason I just gave you. There's a flow from the sermon into this. And also Luke says that, um, that this happened when Jesus had finished these sayings in the hearing of the people as, as if the sayings are still sort of in their mind when this particular event happens. But the location changes a little bit. If you were here during the study of the Sermon on the Mount, you know that there's probably a hill or a mountain just to the north or northwest of Capernaum. And, and it, now they're moving back into the town of Capernaum. And I, I don't think I need to go into much detail about the importance of that particular town, but let me just flesh it out for some of you who haven't been here. Capernaum is a major city of Galilee on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Luke calls it the Lake of Gennesaret sometimes. But it's, it was a major fishing port. And so just from a secular point of view, it was important to the economy of the entire area. Uh, I mean, there was a fishing fleet that was, that was stationed there. Peter and Andrew and James and John all were fishermen and they worked out of Capernaum. It was also right near the border of the part of Galilee that was controlled by Herod Antipas. After Herod the Great died, it was divided up. And so it's sort of an entryway into his region. So there were trade routes that came through that, which made Capernaum a center of taxation. We may remember that when we met Levi, the tax gatherer, early on in this study. But... The, the real significance of Capernaum was that it was Jesus' headquarters. He was, of course, raised in Nazareth, but he moved to Capernaum, and that's really where he worked out of as he spread around the towns and villages of Galilee. But what is significant about that, once again, in creating this dynamic, 
is that Jesus worked multiple miracles, authenticating miracles in Capernaum. And so therefore, if any group of people should have believed in who he was, it would have been the elders of the Jews of Capernaum, and yet they didn't. We'll talk about it a little bit later on why they didn't, but we read this in Matthew that Jesus actually placed a curse on Capernaum for this reason. You, Capernaum, will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. So, also, Capernaum was big enough to house a garrison of Roman soldiers. They might have been mercenaries, but they were under the Roman, um, uh, the power of Rome. And that's where we're going to meet our centurion. So let's go on to the second verse. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. Now, um, there's a lot in there about the centurion. Even though the servant is also introduced here, the real focus is on this centurion. He was, first of all, as most of you know, a military man. Um, The way the Roman army was organized is that a division of soldiers had 6,000 men in it. And they divided that 6,000 to 60 what they called centuries, 60 groups of 100 men. And each 100 men had a commanding officer that was over them, and that was the centurion, very much like a modern-day captain. But the centurion was more or less the backbone of the Roman army. And I say that because he was the go-between the higher officials like generals and the man in the fields. In other words, they lived with the men. They ate with them. They, they slept with them. They fought with them. They died with him, with them. And so he was a very important liaison between the upper-ups and the foot soldiers. Now, what is interesting about centurions in the New Testament is that keeping in mind that they're Romans and keeping in mind that the Romans were oppressing the Jews and considered to be their great enemies, they're praying for a Messiah to come and throw the yoke of Rome off of them. But of all the Roman soldiers, centurions seem to be consistently shown in a positive light. We have this centurion here. We have the centurion at the cross who said, surely this man was innocent. We have Cornelius the centurion who comes to know the Lord in Acts 10. And so throughout New Testament, it seems like the centurions are the best of the worst. Well, this particular centurion is going to be the best of the best of the worst because of what he does. Now, we learned something about him in the way that his relationship is with his servant. Continuing on, he says that, that he had a servant who was sick at the point of death. Now, the, ser- the word for servant here, I mean, servant's a good translation. That's what you normally see. All the English translations have servant. But if you take the word under it, doulos in the Greek, I, I mean, the meaning is slave. And, and, and actually... That's probably an important distinction for us because it's very unlikely that this particular servant was in the employ of this centurion. More than likely, he was owned by that centurion. And that makes the fact that he has this angst about his slave, obviously loving him very much, deeply concerned in his welfare, um, it would, would run counter to his culture. 
In Greek and Roman thought of the day, slaves were considered to be subhuman. And the reason they were considered to be subhuman is the soul was all, in their thought, was all wrapped up in self-determination. And if you had no self-determination, you were not a complete uh, um, human being. And so therefore, they were usually um, demeaned and treated horribly. But not this centurion. We see his compassion. We see a love for a slave that so many of his fellows would have been treated, uh, treating badly. Now, this particular slave or servant is sick. He, he is ill. And Luke doesn't give us any details about what kind of illness it might be, other than the fact that he was sick unto death, that he was near the point of death. So we know that it was a serious illness. Now, Matthew tells us a little, but not much more. He tells us that this servant was paralyzed and that he was suffering greatly. So we, we know that there's a, um, a, a, a real seriousness to this and it places urgency on this entire drama. Now, there are those who criticize the centurion for waiting so late before he calls Jesus. But I think it's kind of a petty argument because actually I think this entire scenario is in the providence of God. And the fact that there's this urgency and the fact that this servant is just about to die. Well, I, I look at it very similar to what Jesus did with Lazarus. We talked about Lazarus yesterday at Wilson's uh, 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 celebration of life. And Lazarus, Jesus drug his feet purposely. And remember what he told Martha? The reason was, it's for the glory of God. So God would be glorified. So I think that the same thing's going on here. The fact that, that the servant is allowed to almost die before this happens, it, it just brings more glory to God in the way that the servant is healed. Well, nonetheless, we see this highly valued servant who is uh, a very, very sick. And then we read in the next verse, when the centurion heard about Jesus. Now, Let's make sure that we see what that says. What it tells me, anyway, is that even though this centurion built the synagogue in Capernaum, he was not a member. He didn't go there. He's not there. He's not present. Because rather than seeing Jesus commit all or, or, or do or perform all these great miracles, he heard about it. It's not unusual that, they, that he heard about him because Jesus' fame is spreading all over the place. Luke 5.15 says this, The report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmity. So it's no small wonder that he heard about Jesus, but he didn't know him. He didn't see. He, he hadn't had that exposure and this goes back to that dynamic. How does this man have such faith if he's never seen Jesus do miracles and these other guys who've seen it all, they don't have any faith in, in, in all. So we're going to get into that as the, the text unveils for us. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. This is an extraordinary detail. Luke uh, is the only one who gives it. Matthew doesn't give this. That rather than go himself, he sent a delegation of the elders of the Jews. Now, 
once again, this dynamic comes into play here, which is just really hard for us to understand. Why did he do that? Why on earth would he call these Jews to, to go and see Jesus? Well, perhaps he was uncomfortable. Um, a Roman asking Jesus to heal his probably pagan, but at least Gentile, um, servant. Or, or maybe he felt that the, um, the, the Jews would have a better chance of getting a yes out of Jesus than he would. But I think either way, I think what we need to see here is more than likely he put the squeeze of these Jews. And, and this is the way I see it. It may not be the way it actually is, but it looks to me like he's calling a favor in. Hey, I built your, built your synagogue. I, I did something nice for you. Now I need you to do something nice for me. I, I, am, I am desperate. So I need you to go to Jesus and ask him to heal my servant. <sighs> I'd give anything to be a fly on the wall. You know, to actually see the way this happened. I keep saying I want to go to the video room in heaven and watch all these things happen. Because I, I can only imagine the look on their faces when the centurion asked him to do this. Notice what we read in the next verse. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly. Say, the word for plead means to beg, to get down on your knees and beg, to grovel, if you will, before Jesus. Now, here, once again, is the dynamic that is being developed here. Because you have these men who have seen amazing things. And they have been amazed by what they have seen Jesus do. Let me just read you some of the passages going back again to the fourth chapter. Before he healed that demon-possessed man, we read they were astonished at his teaching for his word-possessed authority. And then after healing the man, we read, and they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power he commands the, uh, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Later on, after he healed the paralytic, we heard an amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things these days. We have every reason to believe that these elders of the Jews were present at each one of these times of absolute amazement. And yet, even though they are exposed to all these authenticating miracles, their hostility towards Jesus ever since the healing of the paralytic, has been growing seemingly exponentially. At that healing, we read this, and the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, um, what is this blasphemy? Who speaks this blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When they caught Jesus eating dinner with Levi and all of his rowdy friends, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? When they caught him picking grain in the field um, on the Sabbath, some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And finally, when he healed the man with the withered hand, boy, that was, the, that, that was what really set them off. We read they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. <laughs> so notice, notice what's going on here. These guys are the enemies of Christ. They're opposing him. They're following him around looking to find reasons that they can call him a blasphemer and put him away. They're ignoring the great miracles that they're doing. And all of a sudden, this centurion comes up and says, guys... I need you to go and beg him so that he will heal my servants. What an extraordinary dynamic. Now, once again, I might be wrong. I'm not saying that this is what Luke meant. These guys might have had noble purposes, but 
I don't think so. I don't think that the text bears that out. But notice what they say next. This is so vital for this morning. They give a rationale to Jesus why he should heal the man's servant. He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. He's worthy in and of himself. He has worthiness that entitles him to your healing his servant. And they give two reasons for his worthiness. First of all, he loves our nation. Boy, that's extraordinary language, considering who this is. This is the Roman centurion who are over a hundred Roman soldiers who are the scourge of the countryside. They are the oppressors. They are the enemies. Now, granted, it probably means the man was a Jewish sympathizer to a degree, but this is amazing language coming from the elders of the Jews. And the second reason is probably the real one. He built our synagogue for us. I've stood in that synagogue, actually. It's still there. It's unearthed. Well, only the foundation is there. But apparently he was a very wealthy man that either in a whole or full or just to a degree, he helped build that synagogue. Of course, this is a synagogue that he is not asked to be a part of. He is not asked to be there. Now, there's a couple of things I want you to see here. Very important. First of all, notice the absolute external materialistic view that the elders of the Jews have of what makes this man worthy. He is worthy of being healed because he loves our nation and he built our synagogue. That is entirely external. That is entirely materialistic and it reflects their legalistic concept of religion. No concept of grace never would have crossed their minds to go and fall on their knees before Jesus and say, we repent, we were wrong, we have talked bad about you, would you please do this for us and appeal to his mercy and to his grace. That never would have happened to them. And secondly, it it, kind of gives us the impression about the centurion that at least he is a truth seeker. I'm not going to say he was what was known as a God-fearer in those days. A God-fearer was a Gentile who was absolutely fed up with the rank immorality of mythology of Rome and Greece and the mysticism and really just kind of intelligent people couldn't believe in all that nonsense. Um, And they were gravitating towards the monotheism and the very high moral standards of Judaism. And and, and they would be very strong as far as the development of the church was concerned. But I'm not going to say this man was as yet a God-fearer But he was certainly a truth seeker. And as we will see in a moment, he he had a concept of the one true God. The the God that the Jews worshipped. And I believe that will come out. I believe actually that he is under the influence of the Holy Spirit as this continues. But they, they say that he is worthy for these completely and totally external means. Now, notice what happens next. Notice how... The centurion will respond to his own concept of his unworthiness. But first of all, let's see what happens for Jesus. And Jesus went with them. No discussion, no objection, and apparently not even a hesitation. 
that he immediately went with them, headed towards a Gentile's house. Now you might say, well, wait a minute, Jesus was always doing that. Jesus was always responding to the needs of people, but there are some mitigating circumstances here, the least of which is not the makeup of the delegation. Okay, once again, these are his enemies. These are the ones who oppose him, who are making his life miserable. What would you do, given that situation? I know what I would do. (laughs) You bunch of bums, go heal him yourself. You know, you're so righteous and you're so religious and you're so judgmental of me. Go heal the man himself, yourselves, if that's what it takes. But of course, Jesus isn't going to do that. Why? Did anybody catch this? Did anybody catch the correlation between what Jesus is doing and what he taught earlier in the Sermon on the Mount? Remember the ethics of the kingdom? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who are actively abusing you. Well, these are his enemies. These are the men who oppose him. These are the men who are going to actually send him. Not these exact men. But men like this are going to push him to the cross. And Jesus is doing these things for his enemies. Loving them. Doing good for those who hate him. And and the other reason that's extraordinary is the fact that it is a Gentile house, and of course the traditions in those days was that you can't walk into a Gentile house because you will be defiled. Do you remember our study of John, those of you who were here, when the Sanhedrin took Jesus to Pilate's house, and yet they wouldn't go in because it was the Passover, and if they even stepped foot on his threshold, they would defile themselves, so they stood outside in the street. Peter, when he responds to Cornelius... This is what he says, you yourself know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. So Jesus is not only going to go visit him, he's going to go into his house and heal his servant. Even Jesus would say things like, I didn't come for the lost sheep of of the Gentiles, I came for the lost sheep of Israel. And, and, And even sometimes he showed, sometimes very harshly, a reticence to heal Those who were not Jews. Remember the Syrophoenician woman up there? When she followed behind Jesus, begging him to heal her daughter? Remember what Jesus said to that poor woman? It wouldn't be right for me to give the bread that was meant for the children to the dogs, talking to her about her. But of course, he ended up healing her. But in this case, he just without hesitation, without objecting, he goes. Almost as if he knows that there's something going to happen between his divinity. Of course, we know that he knows. In his, in his humanity, we don't. But anyway, as Jesus goes, when he was not far from the house, the centurion sends out another delegation. The centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now notice that this delegation addresses Jesus as Lord. And granted, that is a polite address of the time, and that might be the way that they meant it here. But it is my contention that Luke is slipping in something here on us, and we need to see it. 
He is slipping in, and I'll make this case as we go along, the exalted Christology, the exalted view of Jesus that he has been developing all the way through his gospel. And we saw it back when we looked at Jesus when he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, Curios, Curios, and don't do what I, what I tell you? And, and we decided at that time that that was using that word in its divine sense, the, the, the sense that it is used throughout the Greek version of the Old Testament. And so therefore, I think that the same meaning is here, and especially because of what we're going to read later. But nonetheless, this group of friends comes out to Jesus and says, Stop. You don't need to go any farther. Lord, you, don't trouble yourself. And the reason they say don't trouble yourself is because I am not worthy. Regardless of what the elders said, I am not worthy. Despite of anything that is going on, I am not worthy for you to step foot in my house. Now, why do you, what do you think is going on there? Why do you think the centurion does this? There are some people who think that the centurion actually sent the message with the elders saying, I'm worthy, but... I don't believe that the text holds that out. I believe that, the, that the, the centurion, when he is hearing that Jesus is now approaching his house, he has the same kind of overwhelming experience to, with when, when anyone gets face-to-face with the holy. In fact, I, I tell you exactly what I think is going on. Remember back in the fifth chapter? When the disciples had been out uh, fishing all night long, they caught nothing. And you remember they came in in the morning and Jesus is there on the shore and says, hey guys, let's go fishing. They say, we've been fishing all night long. We caught nothing. Jesus says, trust me, let's go fishing. So he takes them out into the middle of the lake. They cast the net down and there are so many fish in that net that it begins to rip the net. Another boat has to come along and they're struggling with it. And then we zoom out from that picture and we see Peter fall on his knees in front of Jesus on the boat. And Peter didn't say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember what he said? Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. I am face to face with your holiness. I'm face to face with who you are. And I am so sinful that it comes crushing down on me. I am unworthy to be in the presence of the holy God. Now, I don't believe that the centurion thinks that he's in the presence of God, but he knows he's in the presence of a man who wields the power of God. So he panics. And he says, you don't need to come into my house. I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. And I believe that's why he goes on and says, he says, therefore, I did not presume to come to you But simply say the word, and my servant will be healed. Follow the dynamic. Follow the flow. You have a bunch of Jews over here that have seen all the miracles of Jesus, and they don't believe in him. You have this centurion who does. And you have the centurion who Jesus has now made the trip, and even though he's not going to enter the man's house, will heal his servant. What makes that centurion worthy of being healed or having his servant healed? His worth, brothers and sisters, is found in his unworthiness. His worth is found in his assessment of his 
spiritual state. I am a broken, spiritually bankrupt man, and I am not worthy to stand in your presence. It's the same exact dynamic that we're going to see later on in Luke. When two men go up to the temple, one man completely overwhelmed with his own worthiness. I am so good, Lord. I fast and I tithe and I do all these things, not like this bum over here. Do you remember the bum? He is a tax collector, and he is pounding on his chest, and he says, God have mercy upon on me, a sinner. I am unworthy to even stand in your presence and address you because he appealed to the mercy of God, to the grace of God. He was worthy. His worthiness was to be found in his understanding of his own unworthiness and the fact that he needed God, the only Savior, and he turned to Jesus. So the man sends the delegation out to Jesus and says, Jesus, I don't need you to come in. I'm unworthy. What I need is grace. I need grace. I need your compassion. I need your love. I need you to to heal someone who does not deserve to be healed. And oh, I hope that you can see the parallel with our salvation. I hope you can see what's going on here. Because none of us are worthy. Well, he goes on and he really, I think, brings this home when he goes on and he says in the next verse, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes and to another, come and he comes and to my servant, do this. And he does it. First of all, he, he, he states a very military understanding of authority. And he establishes himself, and he's going to the word, the fact that he says, I too am a man in authority, means he's drawing a parallel with Jesus. And he says, I am a man in authority. In other words, I have men underneath me, and I tell them what to do, and they do it because I am that authority. Now, I have authority over a hundred men. Nothing like Jesus has the authority and, I, and, I, and Centurion realizes this. You have authority over sickness. You have authority over demons. You have authority over body parts, if you will, like withered hands and legs and arms that don't work. You have authority over the elements. You have authority over cold, dead ears in the tomb who hear your voice and come forth. You have authority over sin and death and all life. Only God has that authority. Remember what he said? He said, just say the word and my servant is healed. Who says a word and things happen? Who does things by the power of his word? It's not humans. I mean, we might force people to do things if we're in command. But it's God who makes things out of nothing by the power of his word. It's God who heals. It's God back in Genesis when he created the heavens and the earth who said, let there be light and there was light. He created everything ex nihilo out of nothing with nothing more than the power of his word. And so therefore, the centurion is saying the same thing about Jesus. You have authority, but your authority can only come from God. Not like my authority. You are in authority over the very elements of creation. Now, I, I, I don't believe he knows who Jesus is, but he knows the power that Jesus wields. It's the power of God. And that's what he believes in. And that's where he puts his trust now, 
If the centurion had said, I'm a man in authority, then our conversation would be over. But that's not what he said. He said, I'm a man under authority. Oh, that's huge, folks. That's a big word, under. You know what he's saying? He's saying, not only am I a man who gives orders, but I'm also a man who takes orders. I, I, I have a hundred men under me. But I have a tribune over me because the tribune is in charge of a thousand men. And I'm one of those. But over that tribune is the emperor himself. And the emperor is the ultimate authority that tells me what to do. He is the authority over all of the armies of Rome. And if the emperor says jump, we jump. And if you obey me, you're obeying the emperor. If you disobey me, you disobey the emperor because my authority comes comes from him. I have authority because he has delegated that authority to me. Now, I don't doubt that this man was a powerful man, as as most soldiers were in those days, but he didn't have to be. He could be a wisp of a man. He could be a little shriveled up guy, and it wouldn't matter because a big burly foot soldier would have to obey him because of the authority that he represents, the authority of, of the emperor himself. So do you see the obvious connection with Jesus? You're a man under authority. (laughs) You talk about Luke slipping in that exalted Christology. You're a man under the authority of your father. And Jesus says it in various places. That I am a man under the authority of God, my father. And therefore, I wield his power. I share his words. I am God incarnate. Now, I don't think that the the centurion knew that. But what, what we are seeing is the understanding that the power that Jesus wields in the eyes of this particular um, man is the power of God. Now, let me ask you a question. How did he know this? Where did it come from? Obviously, he understands who Jesus is. He's not in the Son of God. He doesn't have the the scriptures to read? How does he come to this understanding? Well, we'll be bringing that out as we go along. All right, notice what happens next. This is also extraordinary. I mean, this passage just gets deeper and deeper. Verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. That's a word... That means that he's amazed, but the amazement is mixed with admiration and respect. He's marveling at this man. What do you think about it that Jesus is marveling? His strength, his power, the fact that he's a nobleman, the fact that he's well-educated, the fact that he's from Rome. These are a bunch of country bumpkins around here. What do you think it is that's causing Jesus to marvel at this man? Well, he goes on and tells us, And he said that when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him, akin, the elders of the Jews are there and apparently a nice sized crowd is also following. Turning to the crowd that followed him, he says, I tell you, in Matthew, that's the full truth formula, verily or truly or amen. I tell you, here it's just truncated. I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So what is Jesus marveling over? The man's faith. Why is this man worthy? Because he has faith. Why did Jesus heal the centurion's 
slave? Because he had faith. And once again, I have a question for you, folks. Where did the faith come from? This is a pagan. This is a Roman. Outside the covenant. He's not in the synagogue. Where did his faith come from that is such a great faith that it causes Jesus to marvel? By the way, Calvin brings out something here that is quite interesting. Boy, we're getting deep here, folks. All right? Does God marvel? No. God's omniscient. He knows all things. So this is completely inappropriate behavior for God, but completely appropriate behavior for who? For man. So what's he saying? He's just expressed this exalted Christology that Jesus wields the power of God, and we know where that power comes from, right? Jesus says, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus has made it clear elsewhere that he is indeed the Son of God. Luke has made it clear in his gospel from the very beginning that Jesus is the Son of God, okay? We know that, but the centurion doesn't necessarily know it. But why is is he marveling at the fact that this centurion has faith. That marveling comes from a human being. And so even in the midst of this, Luke slips in the idea of not only the exalted Christology of Jesus, but the fact that he's a man too. Try to put those two together. And, and, and we get deeper and deeper into the Christology. Let me finish the text and then we'll come back to this thought because this is kind of the central thought of my lesson this morning. First Tim. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. By the time they get back in the... I I love this, okay? I I mean, to me, this is just great. You you don't see, be healed. (laughs) You don't see Jesus doing any antics. He doesn't say anything. There's no word. There's nothing said. Go in, the man's healed. Because Jesus willed it to be done. Very similar to another case that we see in John in the fourth chapter of John. Remember the nobleman who had a son who had a high fever and he went out to, to see Jesus and beg him and the, 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 the man went home, his son was healed. He asked his servants when and it was exactly the time that Jesus said that he'll be fine. Well, that same thing is going on here. It's immediate, it's complete, it's total and it happens with just the will of Jesus Christ. Boy, there are so many different ways that we could go with this as we kind of step back from the text. There are so many different themes that are coming up. There are so many different interpretations. When I say there's different interpretations, I don't mean that you have one idea of the truth, I have another idea of the truth. That's not what I'm saying. There's many different themes, and I could go into the interpretation or the application of each theme. One of the themes that Luke is making clear, I think it's an extraordinary one, is guess what? The good disciple happens to be a Gentile. Remember, Luke is writing to Gentiles, so he could easily be saying, hey, salvation is not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles as well. And by the same token, we've talked about him developing this exalted Christology in his gospel. But I want to stay on track. I want to stay on track with this concept of worthiness and unworthiness. Why was the centurion worthy enough that Jesus would heal his servant? And it brings up the questions, brothers and sisters, that each one of us should ask ourselves, who is worthy?
is anyone worthy? Well, Paul gives us the answer to that. You know he does. Famously from Romans 3. Paul puts it this way. He said, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become what? Worthless. Unworthy. No one does good. Not even one. So in other words, no one is worthy. Everyone is unworthy. That's why I started this message out by saying I'm infinitely and eternally unworthy. And guess what? So are you. I mean, that's where we start. So why does Jesus marvel at the faith of a Gentile and the Jews from his central location are not being marveled at at all because they don't believe in him? Let me develop that dynamic one more time. I just want you to see it. The centurion that we're talking about built synagogue, and yet he doesn't worship there. Those who worship there are the elders of the Jews. And in that very synagogue, Jesus has revealed himself, both through the power of the casting out of demon, the, 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 the healing of the man with the withered hand. I mean, he goes on and on. Multiple miracles worked in their presence, and yet they don't believe. They have the benefit of the prophets and the Torah that talk about the Messiah coming. Isaiah 53, just by itself, should have told them who Jesus was. And yet, they're looking for a way to destroy him. Here is this man over here, completely segregated, has none of those things, doesn't have the prophets, doesn't have the background, and he is the one who comes out with his faith. Now, Jesus finds the man worthy Because the man has faith, okay? So, once again, what is it in this man that would cause him to believe? Now, be careful. Just be careful. Because if Jesus marveled over the man because he had faith, what does that say about the man? And what does it say about Jesus? If Jesus looks at the man and says, wow, I can't believe a Gentile with this amazing faith. Boy, what a good man you are. You must be a noble man. You must really understand. You must have a better mind. You must be able to comprehend this so much better than these bumpkins over here in Capernaum. I am marveling at your faith. As soon as you do that, what have you just done? You've joined the camp of the Jews, folks. Because you have placed his worthiness entirely on something that is inherent in him himself. His worth is something that he has, something that he's developed, something that he has inherently in him. And you have just said that worth in the eyes of God is something that is external, something that is, 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 is something we can have internally in each one of us. That's not the worthiness that is being brought out here at all. The power... That changes this man, brothers and sisters, is the same power that changes the the, the leper uh, uh, and the same power that brings Lazarus out of the grave. The same power that heals the serpent, the servant, the same power that saved you. It's the power of God working in the heart of a man that doesn't have any idea what's going on with them. Faith does not come from us, folks. It comes from God. And God has given this man the understanding that he needs in order to be worth something. His worth is in his unworthiness. 
His worth is in the fact that he knows he can't do it. The worth is in the fact that he recognizes that I am totally and completely worthless and of myself. It is God in me that gives me the worth that I have. Nothing else. It's exactly the way I see it. Going back to Peter, I, I, I love all the things that happened to Peter, the 16th chapter of Matthew. Do you remember when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Remember what Peter said? He said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, that crystalline, Christological confession. Remember what Jesus said to him in response? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my Father in heaven revealed it to you. In other words, Peter is following Jesus around. He, he is privy to all of his teachings. And Jesus didn't get that through to Peter. That was the work of the Holy Spirit in Peter revealing who the, the Christ was. And I believe it's the same power that has just led that centurion to be worthy in the eyes of Christ. So that his servant would be healed. Let me go back to the beginning of this message. And instead of the first person, let me personalize this. You are infinitely and eternally unworthy. You are not worthy to stand in the presence of God. You are not worthy of the grace of Christ. You are not worthy of redemption or salvation or sanctification. You are not worthy to be resurrected from the grave. You are not worthy to stand in the presence of the all-powerful, all-holy, almighty God. You are not worthy to spend an eternity before Christ in heaven. You are unworthy, infinitely, eternally unworthy. And yet, you are infinitely Eternally worthy. Why? Anything that you did? Any merit of your own? No, because of your unworthiness, you went to Christ. Your unworthiness is what drove you to the cross, folks. And Jesus, just like he did with this, with this servant, he heals you with a word. Well, he talks about your healing with a word. About the last word he spoke on the cross was one word in Greek, to tell us die. It's paid. Your debt is paid. I have taken the wrath of God on your behalf. I have gone to hell. I have atoned for each and every one of your sins. And because I died, you will live. To tell us die. It's over. The debt is paid. You're cleansed. You're free. And you can stand before a holy God because of my righteous life. I impute that righteousness to you. So because of your unworthiness and because of my worthiness, Jesus speaking, you now are infinitely and eternally and completely and totally worthy, precious in the eyes of God. And your worthiness is to be found in your unworthiness. I told you earlier that there was this song um, by the Gettys that speaks of this. I didn't give you the full stanza, but they flesh it out beautifully. 
They say, two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness. My value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. The cross and the love of God and the grace of compassionate God is the only reason you are worthy. There's only one way to that worthiness and it's required for entry into the kingdom of God. And that is through total and complete belief in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you don't know him, profess him now. Bend your knee, fall at the cross, and beg for mercy. Because it is in your unworthiness that you will find your worthiness. Let's pray. Oh, dear Lord, what a passage. What a concept, what a thought, what... An amazing redemption you have given us. We're just blown away by you, your love for us, your compassion and your grace. Lord, may there be no one within the sound of my voice now or later who hears this and sees the way you're developing this through the writings of Luke that would ever think that they have any reason, any worthiness in and of themselves so that they might stand before you in your holiness. Break us, dear Lord. Break us down into a spiritual nothingness and bankruptcy so that we know how unworthy we are. And that the more worthy we think we are, the farther away from reality we actually get. Lord, yes, we are unworthy, but not in your eyes. You're precious, cherished in your eyes because of the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, who makes us worthy. In whose name we pray. Amen.